I'm Barrington Smith-Satachit, and this is Words to Drive By, stories to keep you company on whatever commute you're on. Superman Falling Alex is drinking $2 pitchers of Budweiser at Zonka's Bar in Ryan, Indiana, with some guys who went to high school with his wife 15 years ago. Most of them outweigh Alex by about 50 pounds, and most seem to be named Matt or Dave. One of the Matts is telling a joke about two guys at a rooftop bar in New York City, and then the guy jumps over the side, but a minute later, he floats back up to the roof. The other guy can't believe it. He's like, how the hell did you do that? And the first guy says, well, the wind blowing against the building makes such a strong updraft that it lifts you. Alex angles himself to see his wife, Sarah, across the room, hoping she might come over. But she's playing darts with a group of women. They're talking, occasionally singing, to the piped-in 80s music. This mini-reunion, consisting of tonight's meet-and-greet, tomorrow's 80s costume disco, and a bring-the-family picnic on Sunday, has been organized locally. Most of the attendees live in Ryan or surrounding towns. A few have driven in from Indianapolis. One couple has come from Chicago, but still roots for the Colts. Sarah and Alex are the only ones to come from as far as New York. Sarah had been unable to travel during her pregnancy several years ago and missed the larger 10-year high school reunion, so she has made this trip to visit old friends in the town where she grew up. Alex has come for reasons less clear, even to himself. Earlier in their eight-year marriage, he'd found reasons not to come to the Midwest, usually citing an upcoming deadline for an advertising campaign or a creative meeting he couldn't afford to miss. This time, Sarah hadn't urged him at all, saying, I can go. You don't need to bother. It was her lack of heat toward him that made him catch his breath. At the agency, Alex has a good instinct for knowing when a client is perhaps thinking about going another way. He is reputed to have a flair for returning disgruntled customers to the fold, moving them from the back burner to the front until the crisis has passed. Occasionally, though, if an account rep has been too neglectful for too long or the markup has been too obvious, such efforts come too late. But that's not the case with Sarah, he tells himself. He can turn this one around. Fine, but I'm planning to have a nice time, so if you're going to naysay or act bored, you should just stay home. He'd assured her there would be no naysaying. He really wanted to come. It would be fun. Alex turns back to his table, trying to look as if he could be having fun. The mat telling the joke has started slurring his words after only three beers, surprising for a big guy. The second guy's like, that's amazing, I've got to try it, so he jumps over the side of the building too. One of the Daves seems nervous for no apparent reason. He interrupts the joke. Hey Matt, is this your round? Yeah, yeah, says the mat. In a minute, nothing happens. He doesn't come back up. People look over the edge, and it's not a pretty sight. The bartender looks at the first guy and says, Superman, I gotta say, 
When you drink, you can be a real asshole. Some of the guys laugh, but the laughter dies down as they look, confused, at those who are silent, red-faced. Alex sets his glass down, carefully. The men who laughed don't know about Rory, Alex and Sarah's three-year-old son who died last year in a fall from their sixth-floor balcony. The others, suddenly quiet, either hadn't realized where the joke was headed or hadn't been able to stop it. Now it's a social clusterfuck. The Matt who told the joke is still talking, unaware. Alex wants to hit him. Instead, he leans across the table. Ever been to New York? He asks the Matt. Can't say I have. Nikki, my wife, went up there once, with some girlfriends. They went to see one of those Broadway shows. Alex articulates deliberately. What about a rooftop bar? Ever been to one of those? Is there a problem? The Matt looks at Alex, confused and pissed. The Dave, who had tried to interrupt the joke, takes the Matt by the arm, saying, Walk to the bar with me. The Matt looks back at Alex as they walk away. Alex would be the asshole, except his son died. This buys him a lot of leeway. Another Matt tries to smooth things over. Looks like you've been taking good care of Sally. Sally is what Sarah is called by her childhood friends, though none of them seem to know why. She's at the bar now. She looks good in her jeans and a wraparound top, her reddish hair down on her shoulders instead of pulled up. She's perched on a stool talking to a guy who's got six inches and another hundred pounds on anyone here. His name is not Matt or Dave, but Dan. However, everybody calls him Tiny, which he appears to enjoy being called. Alex prefers to call him Dan. Dan's got his plaid flannel shirt open over his t-shirt. He and Sarah look real cozy. They've known each other since grade school, and though they never officially dated, she went to two proms with him, just as friends. And after the second one, she had sex with him in the back of someone's car. She can't remember whose. Outside of a party, she can't remember whose. Afterwards, she and Dan went back inside to the party, and they've never really talked about it since. Every so often, when Alex and Sarah get a baby announcement or a Christmas card from Dan and his wife, Christine, Alex can't help bringing up that night, and Sarah says she's sorry she ever mentioned it. She says that after almost 20 years, that night is the least indicative of what her and Dan's friendship is about. Looking at them now, Dan's head bent to bring his ear to Sarah's mouth, Alex is pretty sure that's exactly the night Dan thinks about when he signs their Christmas cards each year. Alex is ready to go, but he doesn't want to go without Sarah, and he doesn't want to be the one to pull her away, so he nods and smiles through a few more beers, careful not to let her see him watching her. There's a tension between them lately, like a rubber band that sometimes feels pulled tight to the point of snapping. She says he has become too protective. She can't stand his hovering. She accuses him of calling her too often at the graphics company where she's returned to work, accuses him of pretending he's forgotten what item she wanted at the store or what time they have reservations at a restaurant. Finally, after a series of hugs and shaking hands, they head back to the Holiday Inn. Dan and Christine had offered their guest room. Alex had not said that the last thing he wanted was to wake up and make pancakes with Dan and Christine and their two kids still in their jammies, all calling Sarah, Sally, and acting like they somehow know her better than he does. He had just said he felt uncomfortable imposing, and Sarah hadn't argued. 
Walking to the motel, Alex and Sarah are both pleasantly drunk. The rubber band between them feels looser than it has for a long time. Sarah walks along the curb and wiggles her butt, singing under her breath, Don't, don't you want me? Then stops suddenly. Damn it, she says, looking mournfully at an empty lot on the corner. They tore down the Waffle House. Alex has never seen the Waffle House, though he knows that Sarah and her friends used to squeeze into its booths late at night when they were too young for bars and everything else was closed. She wanders into the street. You know I can't believe it when you say that you don't need me. The road is empty, the town is small, but Alex can't shake the thought that a drunk driver could come around the corner at any moment. He takes Sarah's hand. She twirls under his arm, happy until she realizes he's just trying to pull her back onto the sidewalk. She yanks her hand away from his and walks ahead, silent, in the street. When they get to their room, she lies facing away from him on the bed. In the darkness, even after her breathing grows heavy, he envisions the rubber band stretching tighter. The next day, Alex and Sarah drive their rental car to something called the Covered Bridge Festival, traversing back roads behind Dan and Christine's truck, part of an endless caravan of cars driving at a pace normally reserved for people looking for parking or passing a five-car pileup. Alex listens as Sally enthusiastically describes the cornucopia of artery-clogging foods, crocheted handicrafts, and paintings of fall leaves that await them at the festival. People in the cars around them slow even more to take pictures of the covered bridges, which look like barns with double doorways spanning five-foot creek beds. Every few miles, they pass a cluster of houses whose owners have seen the extra traffic as an opportunity to put their unwanted belongings on tables next to signs that say yard sale. The first time Dan and Christine stop, Sarah says, Why not? It's part of the experience. Alex pretends to study a handful of water-stained LPs as Sarah helps Christine dig through piles of children's clothing. Only a month ago, Sarah had burst into tears as they walked past the Gap Kids on 86th and 3rd. Now she's talking and laughing as she holds up items for Dan's opinion. Back in the car, Alex almost asks her what has changed. But Dan and Christine are already pulling over again at the next yard. This time, Alex waits in the car. After several minutes, Sarah approaches the driver's side window. You should go ahead to the festival with Dan. Christine and I will catch up. Her tone is neutral, but in it lives a history of similar phrases spoken in similar instances where Alex failed to show the proper interest or enthusiasm. At a party, why don't you go ahead home? I can take a cab. On a Saturday morning, Maybe you should just call a friend and go out for coffee. I'll take Rory out today. He can recognize that he has failed and is dismissed. This is good, says Dan when Alex gets in the truck. We can get a head start on the beers. They decided to combine with Oktoberfest, so there's a German beer hall. At night, when it gets cooler, they play some polkas and stuff, which isn't too bad when you're hammered. Sarah has impressed upon Alex that Dan is a nice guy, that he's not stupid, 
Apparently, he got a full ride to some private engineering school and could have gotten a job anywhere if he wasn't so emotionally stuck in the sticks that he dropped out. Eventually, he graduated from one of the state schools, and now he counsels delinquent teens. Alex isn't sucked in by his big guy with a big heart routine, but since everyone else seems to be, he's determined to play along. Sounds great, Alex says. Alex notices the back seat of the truck is lined three across with child seats. Carly, Daphne, and Jonah are at their grandmother's for the day. Dan catches him looking. Carly's still in a booster seat till she's eight. Hard to believe we used to just tumble around in the back. Yeah. They'll, uh, be at the picnic tomorrow. Dan's tone indicates he doesn't know if this is something Alex will appreciate. Since Rory's death, when he's with other parents, Alex sometimes feels like a guy who's lost all his money but still comes to the party. People don't know whether to try to share their wealth or apologize for it. Dan turns up the radio. Alex looks out the window, sneaking glances at the car seats in the rearview mirror. If Rory were back there, he'd want to play his REM CD the whole way. Rory loved REM. He could bounce in his seat and listen to it for hours. Though it got a little old sometimes, Alex was always happy he chose Life's Rich Pageant instead of later albums. The kid had taste. Alex just hadn't realized it at first. When, after birth, Rory had been diagnosed with Down syndrome, Alex had been so busy mourning his former idea of the future as they gave up Rory's spot on the Montessori waiting list and put away books on raising the gifted child that he could barely look at his son. On the day Sarah dressed Rory in the onesie with Alex's alma mater, Vassar, printed across the chest, he wanted to put a fist through the wall. When Alex and Dan get to the festival, kids are running everywhere, mouths stained snow cone blue, chewing on pieces of fried dough bigger than their heads. There are buildings with handicrafts and a mechanical bull in the center of a red and blue inflatable ring. Each time a rider gets on the bull, the operator jams a cowboy hat on his head, and friends and family take pictures. The guy who controls the bull keeps it slow for the kids and grandmas, goes faster and harder for the men and teenagers wearing muscle shirts and baseball caps. The beer garden is in a large tent with long tables and a stage at one end. Their waitress, dressed as a German beer maid, has a shaggy blonde bob and thick hipster glasses. She looks a little like Claire, an assistant at Alex's office with whom he'd had an affair. The affair is something he's never told Sarah about. It took place in the first months after Rory's diagnosis. At the time, Alex had felt the only conversations he had with his wife consisted of Sarah relaying information from the specialist or nutritionist or telling him what her new friends on the Down Syndrome Internet Forum had to say about the advice from the specialist or the nutritionist. Somehow he'd equated her adaptability with a kind of simple-minded acceptance. He'd wanted to distance himself from that, from the support groups and the books on the nightstand with names like Sometimes Miracles Hide. He'd started staying at work later, and Claire had been sympathetic and available. To tell Sarah now would only hurt her unnecessarily, he figures, so the best thing he can do is keep his mouth shut. The beer maid serves them steins of a very passable, locally brewed beer, dark, 
and strong. They anchor it down with a couple of brats. Not bad, huh? says Dan. Yeah, pretty good. We're real glad you and Sally could make it down. So are we, Alex says, thinking of how they could have driven to the Catskills or flown to the Keys. After a while, Dan signals for another round and dives into his third bratwurst. They've exhausted sports and favorite episodes of Iron Chef as topics of conversation. Alex has one eye on the entrance to the tent, where figures pass in silhouette against the bright sun outside. He wonders whether Sarah and Christine will call when they arrive or just wander around until they find them. A couple of sticky-faced kids run in, dart under one end of the long table where Alex and Dan are sitting, and scramble over their feet. The men watch as the kids emerge at the other end, just missing a collision with the beer maid as she brings their order. Do you think about trying again? Dan asks. It still surprises Alex when people ask things like this, things that are none of their business. It's out there. I guess it's a little soon, Alex says. He's tried broaching the subject with Sarah, tried bringing up the options. When he does, she nods and says, That's a possibility, in a way that closes the discussion. Before Rory, there had been thermometers, ovulation tests, pamphlets on adoption. They still have the pamphlets, but no one has called the numbers printed on them. No one has scheduled any trips to China. We've got stuff going on, with the lawsuit and all of that. Alex and Sarah, along with their condominium association, are suing the contractors who incorrectly installed the metal grill around their balcony. How's that going? We're pretty certain to win it. They've made an offer, even. I think Sarah would just take it, but it's unconscionable to me that they want to bargain. The full amount is, I don't know, it says something. So the amount matters. Yeah, I think so. It's like the money is the measure, you know. What do you feel like it measures? Dan doesn't move when the beer maid picks up the empties and sets down a couple more. He just waits for Alex to continue. The degree of fault, I guess? I mean, it's their fault, but it shows everyone. Who's to blame, I guess? Do you feel like people blame you? Dan's voice is so neutral. So non-judgmental, Alex has opened his mouth to answer when it dawns on him. Dan's trying to counsel him, like one of his juvies. Alex slams his mug down and some beer sloshes onto his hand. What do you think you're doing? We're just talking. I thought you might want to talk about it. I don't. Fuck. His face feels numb. He pushes himself to standing. I'm gonna go take a piss. Alex is nearly at the front of the line for the portable toilet when he remembers Sarah's lips at Dan's ear the night before. He finds Dan waiting in front of the beer tent. What did she say to you? Alex can hear himself talking too loud, almost shouting in Dan's face. Dan pushes Alex back, but gently, hands around his shoulders as if holding him up. She just said that you'd refuse to go to counseling. She thought it might help if you talked to someone. Someone like you. He tries to control his voice, to deliver the right amount of sneering disbelief. He wants Dan to take the first swing. Dan just nods, like the silhouette of a mountain blocking the glaring sun. Alex wants to knock the mountain down. You play it really well, don't you? 
You think if you're Mr. Understanding, maybe you'll get some again? Alex thinks he sees Dan flinch. Hey, maybe she'll leave me, come back here, and live down the street from you. As a matter of fact, she did say she was looking at houses in Indy. Alex knows Dan's words are true, by their anger and quickness, and by the expression on Dan's face as soon as they've left his mouth, as if he already wishes he could retract them. The tightness in Alex's throat suddenly expands and drops like a boulder to his stomach. He paces the area next to the beer tent, blinking fast and trying to breathe. He doesn't know what to do with his body. He doesn't know what to do. He turns back to Dan. Did she say she's leaving me? Did she say it? No, she didn't say it, he says. You're pretty wound up. Can you calm down a little? Alex makes an effort. He takes a slow breath. She says you're overprotective and uncommunicative, and whatever you've got going on, you're keeping it to yourself, which leaves her alone. And if you're both just going to be alone, then she can't think of any good reason to stay together. That's what she says. Alex nods. She'd said the same thing once during the first year of Rory's life. He thought it was just something she said that she would probably keep saying until it got tiresome. Then, one Friday after work, she'd met him at the door, put Rory in his arms, and said, Okay, here's your one chance. She'd picked up her suitcase and left. She hadn't returned his calls for a week until she appeared the following Friday and asked, So do you want to stay or go? He had stayed, of course. It had all worked out. But he has never known, had it not been for their son, if she would have come back. Now he says to Dan, But I don't know what she wants from me. His voice sounds desperate and whiny, even to himself. Dan's phone rings. Whatever it is, you might as well just give it up. Dan raises his eyebrows and shrugs, his palms face up like Alex should put something in them. Then, finished with the conversation, Dan reaches for the phone. This'll be Christine. The four of them meet by the stand with the fried elephant ears. Sarah is in high spirits. Melted butter and sugar smears on Alex's cheek as she kisses him lightly, demanding, buy me pumpkin ice cream. He marvels that they can seem so together on the surface, if everything is crumbling underneath. He wants to pull her away from Dan and Christine and all of this, to convince her that they are not each alone. But what he told Dan is the truth. He doesn't know where to start, doesn't have any words to say that could fix the things that are wrong. If he tries now, she will blame him for interrupting this day with her friends. Instead, he goes to the front of the line, buys ice cream for everyone, and makes himself eat some. He smiles and nods at the right times as they walk around. Inside the dimness of the wooden vendor's buildings, it's cooler than outside. They drift from table to table, from photographs to paintings, to handmade rocking horses and leather keychains. Sarah pauses to look at wooden plaques with drawings of puppies or bouquets of flowers shellacked to them. When Alex offers to buy her one, she laughs, as if he has made a joke. Looking again at the plaques, he sees they are ugly and old-fashioned, so he plays along. He pretends he is ironic and witty and all the things he felt like he was when they had first started dating. They emerge from the long building into fading light. Dan says, Well, I guess we've done it all. 
unless anyone had their heart set on a bull ride. Alex hears himself reply, Oh, right, I almost forgot. He is pleased by Sarah's surprised look at his words, pleased to know when they arrive at the inflatable ring and he sees the sign stating the maximum weight is 250 pounds, that Dan will not be following his lead. He moves to the front, hand in the air. There are no reins, just the hand grip at the front of the saddle. He takes hold and waits as the operator puts the cowboy hat on his head and a camera flashes. The beer maid walks by with another woman, holding burgers and sodas. The operator pulls the lever, and the bull starts moving slowly, arrhythmically. He'd ended the affair with Claire after that week Sarah had left. But she called sometimes, maybe every couple of months, just to be friendly. On the day that Rory died, Claire had called. She'd asked about things, about Rory. That was all. That's why Alex had gone into the kitchen, because he couldn't hear over Michael Stipe's voice singing, I am, I am Superman, and I can do anything, and the way Rory was banging his Tonka truck, the green one Sarah's brother had had when he was a kid, against everything, the walls, the couch legs, the coffee table. The bull undulates underneath him, rotating at the same time. Alex allows his back to bend and flex. He squeezes his thighs as tight as he can. It's going faster now, and he's sliding off the sides, but he keeps hanging on, pulling himself upright. He's not thinking about the watching crowd or whether it will hurt if he falls. He's just hanging on because he doesn't know what else to do. And then it's over. His legs shaking underneath him, he walks with the group to the parking lot. Dan and Christine have headed to their truck when Sarah looks at him. Are you all right? She asks. Alex nods, yes. Then he's walking around the car. And then he's throwing up. Beer and bratwurst and pumpkin ice cream hit the dirt. His stomach heaves again, and he knows he's going to tell her. Sarah's hand pats his back, the way it won't in a minute or two when he begins talking, when everything he can't keep down anymore spews out of him, hot and rotten. How he heard it, a kind of chink, instead of a thump, and how he didn't think because it was too unthinkable, because they had ordered the 25 millimeter square steel bars with the small gaps bolted to the brick with child-safe netting besides. He didn't think because there was no way, but still he'd said, Claire, I've got to go check on Rory, and somehow, walking down the hall, before he could see it, he had known and started running. Once he begins to talk, he cannot stop. He tells Sarah how when he saw their son, arm out over the edge, reaching for the little green truck that was already sailing through the air, he dove. He lunged. How he had been so close that he had touched him. How Alex's middle finger had grazed Rory's heel as he went over. How if he had gotten there only two seconds earlier, he could have used his thumb and would have caught the boy by the heel he would have pulled Rory to safety, and their son would have been invincible, like Achilles. But because he was too late, because he could only touch the boy with the tip of his finger, it had felt like he pushed their child. And he hadn't heard because he was on the phone. He was holding the phone. He was holding another woman on the phone. He hadn't run fast enough. He had pushed their baby boy. He is so, so 
sorry. Afterwards, in the hot car, he is sobbing and sniveling as she searches her purse for a Kleenex and hands it to him. She drives them back, past the covered bridges and the residue from yard sales. He sporadically cries and repeats short phrases. I swear it was over, and I'm so sorry. The tears and apologies spurt from him involuntarily, like aftershocks. Sarah pulls up to the Holiday Inn and stops without saying a word. He apologizes once more as he gets out. She drives away without looking at him. Alex goes into their room and sits on the edge of the bed in the path of the blasting air conditioner and cries more. Then he uses the rest of his strength to crawl under the blanket and sleeps. When he wakes, it is morning. He is alone in the bed. Sarah has not returned. He closes his eyes and thinks about that Friday she'd left him. He'd watched from the window as her cab drove away, and everything had pulled into focus. He'd known that even as messed up as his life was, if it was the one she was in, it was the one he wanted. During that week she was gone, he'd had to use sick days until he could find a sitter, had to figure out about diapers and baths. When Rory had cried, Alex, not knowing what else to do, had carried him outside and walked up and down the block. He'd met the neighbors that Sarah had mentioned, but he had never seen. They all knew Rory and seemed happy to see him. They all seemed to think Alex was happy to be with him. And after a while, he'd discovered that he was. Alex hadn't fallen in love with his son overnight, but in that week it had begun. And in his memory now, the two years that followed were golden. He'd come home at the end of his days to see Rory. He'd held him while Sarah told him everything they'd done that day. He and Sarah had found each other again, had rediscovered their marriage. The anger and disappointment he'd carried that he'd been unable to imagine living without had miraculously faded. He holds this in his mind now as he sits up gingerly. His body is like a shell, emptied out, fragile, but lighter. Their flight is scheduled for this afternoon after the picnic, so he packs up their things and checks out of the hotel. The park is large with a road winding through it, and he has the cab drive until he spots their rental car. Sarah has left it unlocked, so he puts their suitcases inside as if he knows the plan and walks to the center of the empty road. He stands on the blacktop and searches the expanse of green grass in every direction. Finally, he recognizes some of the parents sitting on colorful blankets, their kids running around them. And then he sees Sarah. She is holding Dan and Christine's little girl by the arms, spitting her in a circle. The girl's feet lift off the ground, and for a few rotations of the earth, she is flying. The story you've just heard was first published in Colorado Review. It was written by me, Barrington Smith-Satachit, with music and sound design by Greg Gordon-Smith.